The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome to a What's Working in Washington Extra. I'm Jonathan Aberman. We're going to talk today about an issue of tremendous importance to business and society in general, the issues of governance and how you make sure that you avoid monoculture, that you get a group of directors that represents the broader interests of the community that a business serves. We have three experts with us today to talk about this topic. Andrew Sherman is a partner with Safeforth Shaw. Andy Collins is founder of Direct Her Network. And Denise Keene is the former executive vice president and general counsel of Altria Group and a member of the Direct Women Board. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Great, Great to, be here. to have you here. Um, let's begin by talking about governance, because I think that's a word that people use all the time. Certainly in the current political environment, governance is a word that's thrown around a lot. But Andy, I'll start with you. What does governance actually mean? Governance is the fiduciary responsibility that one has over a group of people that they are governing. So whether it's in the context of government or corporations or not-for-profits, you know, there is a in, in inherent stewardship that's being created where you have to put the interests of those that are depending on you to do the right things and to manage risk uh, and take those responsibilities that are fiduciary in nature seriously and not put your own interests ahead of those that are depending on you to make good decisions. There's a magic word you use a number of times there, fiduciary. Yes. That's, that's a magic legal word, isn't it? Well, it's a magic legal word, but it's also, I think, an ethical and philosophical word that we've lost a bit of touch with in the last 10 to 20 years, uh, where you are a caretaker. You are have a responsibility to look out for others and to take both risk management and opportunity recognition and execution seriously. Denise, you've been uh, EVP and general counsel of an organization that would clearly, with my experience over the years, that would mean you're right in the middle of this issue of, of governance. Help our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with the legalities of, of governance. What, what does it mean as a practical matter for an organization? For an organization, governance is critical because you have a board that is there to represent, amongst other interests, shareholders. And shareholders invest in a company because they think it's going to be properly run. They think there is going to be a vision that they will understand. And I think that your board, who is what in reality the, the pinnacle of the of governance for an organization, has to deliver against that. And that's why I think it's so much in the news today with so many things that we see going on with corporations. So so far the conversations around governance within the context of, of corporations. Andy, it would strike me that this issue of governance is just I would have thought it applied just as much to not-for-profits as it does to a for-profit business, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, not-for-profits have a different uh, cadre of stakeholders, but they are still operating in the best interest of a particular group. And so they're still going to have the same kind of governance issues, and they have the same kind of board issues. Um, the structure is simply the difference. 
So in my life, I've had a, I've been on many boards and and I've worked uh, as a lawyer and as a business person in various contexts. And the way I explain it to fellow directors and people is it's pretty straightforward. If you can't think of anything else, just imagine that what you did was in the front page of the post and, you know, do the right thing. Do you think that that is that the, the simplest way for us to understand what governance is trying to do? I mean, I think doing the right thing is where it starts, but I think one of the issues we're seeing today is where should the line be drawn between what directors become involved in and what is the province of management? And I think there's been a little bit of pushback in terms of perhaps directors need to get more engaged in understanding some of the, what I would call, critical issues that might might really influence an, a corporation in a broader or non for profit in a broader context. And I think the standard that you articulated is very good when it comes to doing the right things and making informed decisions. What the headline news standard might not cover is an issue that I think is just as big of a problem in governance today, and that's apathy and complacency and laziness. So you know, among it, who um, among boards who are not investing the time and the resources they need to make good decisions, or they punt and say, you know, since we can't make a good decision, we'll make no decision. Well, as you know, Jonathan, from your experience, no decision is a decision. And that's one of the other problems with governance today is, you know, being willing to make a hard decision and the accountability of having it at the top of the headline news, which is the standard you articulated. I'm surprised to hear you say that because I would have thought that in light of some of the scandals that companies have been involved in, you know, Equifax recently, uh, Enron, MCI, WorldCom, and, and various things where the boards were found, where are you guys, you know, and women, where where have you been? If I was a director right now, I would be I would be hysterical about trying to stay on top of things. But you're telling me that's not the case? No, no, no. I'm agreeing with you completely. I'm saying that I, I think that one of the flaws in governance today is not taking the time to make good decisions or punting, kicking the can down the road and not making a decision at all. You and, know, you yeah. know I, have a, I don't mean to interrupt you, Andy, but I, um, but I have a phrase which is when the accepted becomes unacceptable. And I think there was a point in time where directors could perhaps take a little bit more of a hands-off role and waited till management came and presented issues to them. I think now what Andrew's talking about is they have got to get more proactively involved exactly. because exactly. that behavior is no longer acceptable. They can't deliver against their fiduciary responsibilities by just waiting right. till they hear about and it. And in the fast-moving world that we're living in, we can't wait till the next quarter's board meeting, you know, oh, well, you know, we'll just... Uh, be complacent and we'll defer our decision-making till the next quarter. Well, by the next quarter, the whole world's changed again. Well, I think that's, uh, again, where the issue of diversity on boards becomes very exactly. impactful. Exactly. Because it's easy to be complacent when you're operating in an echo chamber with people who are just like you and who think just like you. It is much more broadening if you are operating with a cadre of people who have different points of view, will push back will think about things that maybe the echo chamber didn't allow and bring in uh, a more proactive approach because they've got feelers out in other areas. You know, Andy's right. A lot of complacency can come from too much like-mindedness, and like-mindedness tends to root itself sometimes in a lack of diversity. But it also kind of goes to another point, which is, and I think it's been established, hiring 
a woman, for example, for a board is great. But you really do need a cluster because otherwise I have seen a mentality which is let me beat it out of them and let them think like me. Mm. So you really need a sort of, I think, a group of voices that can come together because the benefit of diversity is letting diversity play out and not turning it into something that otherwise might have existed in the boardroom. And I think there are statistics, uh, didn't bring the citations with me, that show that boards with three or more women uh, actually have a, a very deep impact on corporate productivity and return on investment um, beyond um, just having a single individual. And there's statistics that show, as an aside, that women-led businesses significantly outperform their male counterparts. Uh, see that in the venture capital industry time and time again. After the break, I want to continue this conversation and turn to culture and and ethics and how governance really does drive an organization one way or another. So we're here. What's working Washington Extra? We'll be right back after this break. And we're back to continue our conversation about governance and diversity and the importance of boards understanding their role in setting culture and being responsible for ethics in the broader context. We're joined by Andrew Sherman. He is a partner of Safer Shaw, Andy Collins, founder of the Direct Her Network, and Denise Keene, who is a member of the Direct Woman Board. Right before the break, I, I suggested let's go now and let's talk about this whole issue of, of monoculture, the idea, as, as Andrew pointed out, of boards just living in this echo chamber. This would seem to me to be an enormous problem. I see it. You saw it in Uber. You saw it in Volkswagen. You see it in the Weinstein companies. It just seems everywhere. Companies are getting caught in situations where they're not doing what we described in the first segment. is just doing what's right. So what is the responsibility of the board and how do we avoid things like this? Well, I'll just get conversation kicked off here. The NACD, the National Association of Corporate Directors, only a few months ago, appointed a Blue Ribbon Commission recognizing culture as a strategic asset. I mean, this is a pretty recent development that groups that are focused on board education, board best practices, are recognizing that the intangible assets inside a company are just as important, if not more important, than the tangible assets. And so I think culture, uh, as Denise knows, has such a close tie but not only to risk management, but to opportunity recognition. And it's just elevating itself uh, as we're speaking today into an issue at the board level that the board's grappling to understand. I think that um, part of the uh, issue in diversifying boards is also to bring people in who have that foundation of understanding culture and understanding the impact of culture and to bring that in with them so that boards are more aware of that. When you talk about it, culture really starts with the people that you hire. Mm -hmm. So people go to corporations that they think represent a culture that they want to follow. And in fact, companies should be hiring people that, that execute against that. And boards are part of the process of setting that tone and setting that expectation and judging management accordingly. And so the fact that culture is now being highlighted, I think that many board members were always interested in it, but now what they're being told is, it's your job. And I think before, some of them might have been a little bit hesitant in getting over-involved. And I think we're defining the line differently in terms of how boards need to get engaged and understand the companies that they represent. Absolutely. And I think social media has also put a lot of pressure on on corporations and boards in a way that didn't exist 15 or 20 years ago. 
because now when you're on the front page, when Uber makes that oops, uh, it's all over social media and there's pressure on the corporation and direct pressure on the board because now it's going to impact bottom line, which goes back to the fiduciary responsibility. So the exposure now is much more instantaneous and much more far-reaching. And unforgiving. Being, <laughs> and unforgiving for being tone deaf to what's happening in the culture. So, Andy, what you're talking about there, I, I think, is the importance of understanding that you're living out. We're all living our lives now on a public stage, and you have to be mindful. Absolutely. When you're talking, though, about culture, you're not just talking about culture. You're talking about a culture that has certain values, you know, that, that are, are consistent with societal values. So, for example, the current outrage, the Me Too movement, I mean, that that's... Is that a cultural issue or is that a social issue running into a culture issue? How would you categorize that? I think that's very much a social issue that pours out into a cultural impact. And again, it's a perfect example of boards that are tone deaf because they're operating in that echo chamber. So if we don't have women and minorities on the board, then and it's a boys club, then when this issue comes up, if it ever, even, even comes up to board level, um, it can be easily dismissed because there's no one in the room to say, wait a minute, guys, have you thought about this impact or this is wrong because? And it's so much easier to have it swept under the carpet than if you are responsible to a board that is sensitive to the issue. But are we just talking about diversity or are we talking about something broader here? I think we're talking about something broader, but diversity is a critical way to create the environment that you are getting different perspectives. What's an easier way to do that than to bring people together who view the world differently? And I think that's the benefit of diversity on boards. And just kind of going back to the to the Me Too movement, I mean, it should be getting the notoriety it is. It's been going on for so long, the underlying issues. Mm -hmm. And the fact right. that it's just coming out now also goes back to our earlier conversation about that is just not acceptable. And boards, you have got to dive into that issue. You just can't wait until you read about it in the newspaper. So I think it is... I would view it as a, an engine to kind of drive the issue that we're talking about in terms of greater accountability for the culture of an organization and behaviors, some of which are illegal, but some of which go beyond legality. Look, we've all we've all worked in cultures that are rich in trust and respect, and we've worked in cultures that are rich in lack of trust and disrespect. And Me Too is an unfortunate reflection of how many cultures are still rich with disrespect and distrust. And, and incentives for all the wrong reasons. And that's what needs to bubble up to the top and, and get greater recognition. Yeah, Jonathan, I wanna go back to your original question about uh, is it a diversity issue or is it something broader? Um, and frankly, I'm always a little dismayed at that dichotomy because it implies that somehow diversity is different than what is good for the entire organization and nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is that the very things that promote diversity and enable a corporation to become more diverse are good for everybody in the organization. And so it's not a question of should we do this just to be diverse? It's shouldn't we be doing this because it is best practices to have other voices at the table, to have other point of views and to make sure that we are really in touch with the culture and environment that we're working in. 
Can I just say that is such an important point because if your diversity goals are not integrated into your business plan, then in fact we're always talking about diversity. It should be part of what it means to be Absolutely. a high-functioning organization. It's not an add-on, but without a doubt, it is a critical aspect of getting to that point. It sounds to me that the other part of this conversation we haven't had yet is that the reason why boards need to be thinking about diversity and culture and viewpoints is because here's a newsflash, society is diverse. Absolutely. <laughs> Isn't it amazing right. it took us so long to well, that but, one? But I, I, think, I think that in a way what's, what's really important about this conversation, and, and it's so timely to be having it in Washington, and when we come back after the break, I think this is really intertwined with a lot of big social trends right now. And businesses can either be part of the change that needs to happen or they can get in the way. Let's talk about that when we come back after the break. Welcome back to What's Working in Washington Extra. We're talking about the challenges of governance. And before we took a break, I asked you, aren't we really just talking about society? We've said all along that boards should reflect um, the composition of society, of their investor group, and certainly of their consumers. So we're living in a world that's changing. And it's time for boards to understand that they either get with the program or they get themselves in trouble. It's very important to reemphasize the business case for diversity on boards and in leadership. It's not just the right thing to do and a reflection of society, it's smart business. For boards to sit on top of corporations with fiduciary and stewardship responsibilities and not be a reflection of the markets and the customers they serve is just stupid. It's stupid, it's bad business. And so it's not just about a societal need to do the right things, it's a good business strategy to understand the markets you serve. Well, I would suspect that by now, if, using the word stupid, we've gotten everybody's attention. So now let's help the people who are on boards and thinking about boards. Let's give them some tangible advice for how we can build the right kind of boards. Denise Keene, I'll start with you. Your work on the Direct Women Board Institute. What what can you offer? What should people know about? Sure. Well, Direct Women was founded in 2007 by the American Bar Association. And their mission is to get more women on corporate boards because they believe that that is a way to enhance governance. And so what they do is they have a, uh, a, a director institute every year. They go out and try to identify very, very qualified women lawyers. And that's kind of the pool that they look to. Women who have been in businesses where they have their leadership tested, where they are problem solvers, where they really break what I would call the stereotype of the support a lawyer provides. So they bring these women together. They introduce them and have a three-day program. They introduce them to other directors, business leaders, faculty, to try to really enhance their understanding of what it means to be on a board. They then provide a series of networking opportunities. So their goal is to identify these women and to kind of give them the tools so they can go out and try to find the positions where, from our perspective, they'll make a really big difference in trying to enhance corporate governance. Andy Collins, you founder of something called Direct Her Network. What does that do and how is this filling in the void? It's sort of the next step uh, after what Denise was talking about. So I have to back up and tell you that I wear a different hat. Um, I actually work for the McCormick Group. It's an executive search firm. And in that capacity, I see board searches and I see 
uh, people coming to us with one very set notion of what they need, either in the C-suite or at the board level, they already have a picture drawn in their mind. And it occurred to me that um, I could impact that um, if I could get there ahead of that. So I put together a group um, as a referral network. So we don't, the director network does absolutely no training. People are already doing that. Direct Women does a great job of it. Uh, uh, Catalyst does a great job of it. Uh, not trying to train people. What I'm trying to do is take people who are already board ready, the same women that Denise just talked about, and bring them to the attention of corporations based on how their business case is going to be benefited by a particular profile or expertise. So again, it takes it out of the realm of, you know, have you been a CEO and into the realm of how can you impact a corporation's bottom line and what benefit will you be to the board? And we work with individuals to help them articulate that. And we also work across our membership to bubble up names. Who should be on the board? Who is ready? Do you know someone who has this kind of background? So that we're constantly then sponsoring each other. So beyond mentoring into sponsoring. And my idea was not to reinvent the wheel, uh, but to bring all these organizations together. Uh, we have representatives from uh, women in technology, women in international trade, the American Retail Association, the American Bar Association, Women's Bar Association. Uh, I, I'm sure I'm leaving some of our connections out, but um, that's sort of the group that we're playing with and saying, bring us the people who are board ready. Surfacing great candidates, Sandra Sherman, I'll turn to you with the last couple of minutes here. You represent and advise many boards. What is best practices these days to build a compliance and the right kind of culture? Well, it's fascinating. You know, being here in DC, putting on your policy hat, of course, everyone thinks, well, let's just regulate it. Let's just make it the law. Some countries have begun to regulate the number of board seats that need to be held by women or minorities. I think in this country, we still have a crisis. Uh, we're at 22 percent, uh, where we have 51 percent of the population. That's a huge gap that needs to be filled. I think that it's going to be a combination of social pressures, as we've been talking about. But the main way to get things done in corporate America is through private initiative. Uh, BlackRock just announced, they're the world's biggest money manager, that they will not invest in a company, in a portfolio company, without at least two women on the board. If more and more private equity and venture capital, a world that you're very familiar with, begin to have investment mandates together with perhaps some regulatory pressures, I think you'll see the needle start moving in a way that it needs to. But again, the business case for diversity and private action is going to always be, in my opinion, more powerful and more impactful uh, than trying to regulate it where people feel like it's a check-the-box compliance-like function. Could I just mm, add absolutely. one thing, Jonathan, and that is, and it sort of goes to the conversation we've just had, companies are out looking for women on boards, but I think one of the impediments to success, and I know Andy's group works on this very extensively, is everybody wants a CEO. I want a woman CEO on my board, and I think that is a critical 
uh, impediment to increasing the numbers because right. there just at this point in time aren't enough women not, not CEO. Enough. And I think it is really incumbent on companies to say, what is the skill matrix that I need? Absolutely. What are the talents that I need? And you can go out and find a number of people, a number of women and you know more diverse groups that can fill that. Absolutely. And that's what we need to be doing. 100% right. I mean, you think about how much time we've spent talking about culture on the show today, you know, a, a chief human resources officer might be more valuable with the expertise that she would bring to the table on a board than a CEO and have be able to suggest more best practices and diversity uh, strategies. So I think Denise is 100% right on that. It's talent, 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 isn't it? Getting people on a board that actually can provide insight rather than just parrot things. And the That's, right complement of talent. Right. Yeah. Um, one interesting statistic um, I drew from a GAO report that came out in uh, January of 2006, Government Accountability Office, uh, where they were looking at um, diversity in boards and in particular women on boards. And one of the things that they noted is that given the current pace of board seat turnover, it would take until 2055 to reach parity if we keep doing what we're doing. So... In other words, there are so few board seats that turn over in, in, and this was focused on the Standard & Poor's top 1,500 companies, so few board seats turn over that there's very little opportunity to change that makeup of that board. So what they've recommended uh, are several things. One of them is exactly what Denise was just talking about, moving it from just the CEO and broadening the search criteria. But a second was considering enlarging the board, adding an extra seat or two. Most boards uh, are about 9.5 is the average these days. And typical is anywhere from 8 to 15. So we could definitely just make more spots. It would seem to me that we all should, should be focusing on helping women start businesses. So we, we fix this by letting them run their own businesses. Maybe we need to get some men on I'll some women on business. There you go. Well, I want to thank all of you for taking the time to join us. Uh, Andrew Sherman, it's always terrific to have your viewpoints, partner Safe Earth and Shaw. Andy Collins, founder of Direct Her Network and also with McCormick Group, recruiting the leaders of tomorrow. And Denise Keene, you're a member of the Direct Women Board and... The three of you have provided me with a lot of great information. This has been a fun one to do, and we look forward to pushing these issues forward with all of you again in the future. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What's Working in Washington, and a thank you to our sponsor, Montgomery County Economic Development Corporation. Their business development team can help you find the best talent, an ideal location, and the latest in market and business intelligence so you can do business successfully in the greater Washington region and Montgomery County. Your business success starts with MCEDC. Connect with them at thinkmoco.com. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan. Our online writer is Barbara Ulrich. Music provided by two DC region bands, Two Car Living Room and The Sunbathers. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please rate the podcast and let us know who you think we should be talking to on the show. Tweet us at at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to What's Working in Washington. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.